This week we had a chance to visit with Coach Jackson about experimenting as a coach and a leader. How do we try new ideas and how do we create environments where others can be creative and innovative in our work? We talked for a bit about some background research on experimenting and then Coach Jackson shared a number of great examples for how when he was a coach he implemented new ideas and how he knew which ones were the right ones to try. Coach Jackson has been a trailblazer in innovation and creativity and coaching. So it's an awesome opportunity for all of us to learn from him about the topic. Thank you, Coach Jackson. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be together again. And another week of learning here with our coaching class and with Coach Jackson. And today's focus, we'll talk about the topic of experimenting and innovation in leadership. So Coach Jackson has a wealth of knowledge about that. We've already heard from him this semester a lot about the creative aspects of his work. So today's a chance for us in similar ways to follow the pattern of learning a bit about the research. And then we will have a discussion with Coach Jackson in time providing we'll have a chance for a little uh, question and answer as well. Um, Coach, before we start into our topic, we have Veterans Day tomorrow. And for a lot of our teams here at the UW, we, we take time to acknowledge that with a lot of our high school teams as well. Before we start with our topic, I wondered, did you used to be purposeful about addressing things like holidays or commemorations with your team? And if so, why did you do that? Uh, no doubt. I, I think there's uh, you know, ad adequate uh, things to discuss about, uh, you know, obviously during our period of time, you know, we've had holidays change directions. We used to celebrate Lincoln's birthday. We used to celebrate Washington's birthday. We used to have a, if you were in Illinois, you had a day off on Lincoln's birthday and schools and, uh, you know, community banks and things like that. And now it's changed to President's Day and I was kind of wondering what's going to happen to, you know, which we call now Veterans Day, Armistice Day, uh, which was designated the 11th hour, the 11th day of the 11th month that this peace treaty was signed in hopes that uh, peace would resonate with the world. And this is a war never to experience again, you know, the war to end all wars. So it's a topic which is, Interesting, but it's not true. Wars continue to happen, and we have a couple going on now, even in our own, you know, news media that's covering them, and there are many more that are not covered in the news. So we are, as humans, warring people in a lot of ways, but even though we've tried to eliminate wars, it seems like there's no end. And to commemorate this one in hopes that, you know, we can establish some kind of peace or peaceful coexistence is important. We have in our state right now, um, the playoffs coming for a lot of sports. And so this is a time of year when the games take on higher stakes. But when we compare it to the broader context, I think it lends a lot of perspective to all of our teams that are playing to see that, yes, these games are important, but we're in a world where there's a lot of complicated things going on. So um, 
some of the coaches we'll talk about today are people who have been very purposeful about allowing their teams to see the big, bigger picture in the world as we're going through the sport. Nice. So referring coach again to the playoffs today, as I'm talking through the research, I'd like to highlight on a few of the coaches in our local area in Madison right now who are going through some things um, as examples of the research. And one I'll start with is we have a town here near us, near Madison called Wanakee, Wisconsin. And Wanakee has a football coach named Pat Rice, who's been a longtime football coach here, who's been one of the best ever in our state. He's won many state titles. His team this year has been completely dominant. They've been barely given up any points. And, you know, most games are over with by halftime. And one of the reasons that we studied Coach Rice um, over the years is that he is known as an innovator and he's been very purposeful about how he implements change in his program. And one example was that a, a few years ago, he overhauled his team's offensive philosophy. And traditionally, they had been kind of a power team, a team that would um, kind of run over the other team just in a physical way. But Coach Rice was always studying the horizon of the game, and he saw that a lot of colleges, a lot of professional teams were opening up their their game and running more of a, um, I'd have to ask some of our football guys, Marty, if you could pop in, or somebody like a, an open, uh, a run-and-shoot offense, like a spread it out, throw the ball more. And so Coach yeah, Rice. Yeah, a, a spread offense is usually what it's referred to. Yep. Spread offense. Thank you, Marty. So Coach Rice, you know, even as his team was at the top of the field, they were um, they were the champs, and he still elected to make this major change. And the way he did it was he did a deep dive, a deep study of other programs, and he um, didn't kind of do it half, you know, half speed. He went all in on it, and he developed an entirely new offensive system and was willing to do that. It was a risky move but it's continued to pay big dividends. And so we learned a lot from Coach Rice about staying ahead of the innovation curve um, in, in doing his work. And it relates to our topic today, which is experimenting and innovation. And how do we as coaches avoid stagnation? How do we allow space for growth, both personally, but also as our teams? I'd like to share three aspects of thinking about experimentation and then some specific items related to that before we get into a conversation with coach. First of all, the example I just shared about Coach Rice is what we might call systemic innovation, meaning Coach Rice wasn't just tweaking with a little um, way they went about practice or a way they communicate, but he literally changed from a power offense to a spread offense. And as a, a, a very systemic change, meaning they change the very strategy that they're using. And that is one form of change, systemic change. When are we as coaches willing, able, and called to make systemic change? The second type of change we might talk about is what we could refer to as choice architecture, meaning some of the stuff we've read about recently in the class um, comes from the field of behavioral economics. 
which means that as coaches, the way we design our routines and our spaces, the way we set up the physical spaces of our team, the way we design our practices and our interactions, it shapes the behaviors and the choices that are made on our team. I'll share one example again of a local coach is here, Coach Jackson, and for all of you who are not here, we have a really great volleyball program at the University of Wisconsin, one of the best in the country. And our coach, his name is Kelly Sheffield, has really embraced this idea of behavioral economics and of making decisions that shape behaviors on a team. And two examples that Coach Sheffield has done is the way he developed the team's locker room, the way he the physical design of the locker room and the, the meeting space, he's done things like he created two-way chairs so that everyone can see each other in the locker room. He eliminated visual obstacles so that, um, again, everyone can see each other and there's a, a natural bringing together for communication in the locker room. That's just one small example. Another thing he's very attentive to is the way that huddles, team huddles, are carried out. He has various ways that they go about a huddle in a game in different situations. This is also something Coach Jackson has mentioned with us this semester about how he was very purposeful about huddles. So this example of, of Coach Sheffield is what we again would call the choice architecture. Coaches can shape the choices that are made by designing things like a locker room, uh, a huddle, um, the way our practice um, spaces are laid out, the way that the, the Coach Jackson is known to communicate in circles and the purposeful nature of a circle. We may ask him about that. Um, that kind of thing shapes the tenor of how we communicate on a team. Then the, the third thing I'll say here um, when we think about experimentation is what we could call developing a culture of experimentation on our teams. I'll say it one more time, developing a culture of experimentation on our teams. And this is where the coach creates an environment in which creativity and openness to new ideas is ever present throughout not just the coaches, but the players and all. So today, let's think about those three levels of change, systemic innovation, choice architecture, and developing cultures of experimentation. Obviously, these will apply in very different ways for all of us, depending upon where we are and what the, the nature of our situations is. I'm doing a lot of the talking to start, but I'll say a few more things before engaging coach with some questions. First of all, when we think about change, one idea in the research that's very clear is the importance that the leader has intellectual humility. I'll say it again, intellectual humility. Again, this is something that coach has talked a lot about, about benching the ego in that if we are going to embrace change and create an environment for change, we have to be willing to say that we don't know it all. We have to be willing to look for new ideas that are not basically always within us. A second thing we'll say here is that there is a sweet spot between rigidity, which is a coach who never changes. And I think we've probably all had coaches like that. Someone who is very set in his or her ways and thinks it's my way or the highway always and is not changing. That's one end of the spectrum. The other is 
someone who's doing new stuff every year and constantly changing without this bedrock foundation. Coach spoke with us about the importance of having a system. That's at the foundation of all this, that we need to have a system that is foundational to all that we do. But within that system, we can create space for change. Uh, a couple more items. One is that when we are going to engage in experimentation and innovation, we have to do due diligence with the pre-study of it. We have to be prepared for it. I go back to the Coach Rice example. He didn't just decide on a whim to go to a spread offense. So he didn't just watch ESPN one night and think, well, I'm going to try that. He spent a, a full many months of preparation and studying why or why not to do it. He was very diligent and had a, his whole coaching staff study this in depth before doing doing it. So there's a pre-study that has to go on, go go into it. Last three items. One is then when we are making a change, we need to evaluate it. And that is not just like the big outcomes, but what we might call the marginal gains and losses, the little differences that it makes. We need to look at purposefully evaluating that. I'll say that that doesn't have to be like a statistical evaluation. An example of one more of our coaches is coach Paula Wilkins is our women's soccer coach at UW-Madison. And tonight they play in the NCAA playoffs hosting a game here on our campus. Coach Wilkins is an experimenter and I'll say two things that she did and how she evaluated it. She, for years, was telling her team, you need to play hard. You need to play hard. And that was a very ambiguous thing for them. So one of her experiments was to literally define playing hard. She provided very, very specific things she was looking for when she said play hard. And so she used that definition of playing hard with her team and she was able to evaluate it on a almost a daily basis to see how was that how was that affecting what she saw in the field. No statistics involved necessarily, but she had very clear behavioral things she was looking for. Another thing she did was a lot of her players she she thought were experiencing anxiety on a daily basis about what were we going to do at practice. And sometimes the, the uncertainty of what was going to happen at practice would bring a heaviness to, to them before they got to practice. So she started each day posting the practice plan to each of them so they knew exactly what they would be doing before they got there. And they were able to process it before they started. And she did that experiment and then she she evaluated how did it affect players' confidence? How did it affect their preparation for practice? And she found very positive um, outcomes from that. On the flip side, we can find negative outcomes from our, our little experiments. Two final things. The research shows that those who are willing to try new things on the front end, the experimenters, are more prone to scrutiny from inside and out. If you're trying a new idea that's looked at as especially outside of the box, you can be, again, prone to critique because you're doing something different from others. I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing, but it is something that coaches need to be aware of. And then the last thing I'll say is that an experimental culture not only has, the research would indicate, not only has the possibility of get, getting new ideas for us, 
but an experimental culture is found to be one that elevates the spirit of a team. If a team knows they can try new things, if they know there's an openness, there the research indicates that the the general tenor of the team can be very positively affected. So we shouldn't be discouraged from trying things, but we should do it in a very purposeful, systemic way. So coach, uh, I guess my first question I'd like to ask you after all of my talking is in some of our previous sessions, you've really highlighted on just really creative things that you did early on in your career that were very outside of the box. And one question I had was, is there a certain personal characteristic of yours that always made you curious? Is there a certain skill set that allowed you to do that well, to experiment well? Or was it something that you observed over the years from other coaches? No, I think it was uh, that I wanted to do things that were innovative uh, and looking for other ways to break the mold. And, uh, you know, the late 60s generation was breaking molds all over the society at that time. And, you know, we had a pretty basic idea of what, uh, you know, the structure was of our game and how we, you know, played our game and, and went about our business as far as practice and conditioning. So it was, it was an idea about, okay, let's see what else we can do that can bring more attention to this. I always thought that the sport of uh, you know whatever technical sport it is, particularly basketball, volleyball, soccer, football, etc. Football doesn't have as many moving parts, perhaps. Should uh, experience their uh, form much like Tai Chi or karate instructors take their uh, art form into their sport, which is you know their whole training, their whole elevated, uh, you know, going through various belts as you start to learn more and more about your sport and become more competitive in it and have a dedication that's almost uh, a spiritual life that goes along with the sport. And I, I felt that was something that was, you know, possible, but not probable in our society. Um, so in that regard, I mean, I did some things that I thought were experimental that uh, didn't work. Um, tai Chi before practice, because I wanted players to be in that position, Tai Chi being a form of martial art at one point. Uh, the position that they are in uh, when you do Tai Chi is basic ready position that you play basketball in. And so many of the players are standing straight up and down and have to get down to a ready position to react either one way or the other, defensively or offensively. I wanted them to be able to carry themselves in a more of a ready position, particularly defensively. So we tried Tai Chi uh, in training camp, which is a four-week session before the season begins. About uh, a week and a half before the season started the players started coming in that were a little bit older saying you know this tendonitis in my knee is really killing me and it's this uh, continual uh posture that we have in tai chi that's exacerbating you know my knee and and of course understanding that a little bit i had to ease off that uh but that that's one thing i i wanted to do to try and increase the player's ability to react the way i felt was important it didn't work uh 
So there, there are some things that I think are possible and some things that are, you know, not quite possible. I, I had a, a coach in college, excuse me, in high school, a football coach that changed different systems three years. As a sophomore, when I was uh, in high school, they ran a single wing offense, which players probably don't know that are football players. And, and uh, the junior year I was in high school, a T formation. And then the senior year, they went to a pro offense, which was a, called a split end and a wide receiver at that time. And I joined out uh, playing football at that time and was a split end. And, and uh, we had a quarterback, obviously, that was a, a accurate passer. And I think, uh, you know, going back and talking to this coach, he said, I had to design how we played according to the players that I was receiving from elementary and junior high school. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, I can emphasize one short story that I'll try and tell. Ron Ecker had this uh, um, meeting with uh, Coach Wooden, and he asked him to come and speak to his players banquet at the end of a season. They had a successful season. Coach Wooden went out and spoke in, his, in eastern or mid-Texas. And on the drive back to the airport, which is an hour and a half drive, he was asking John Wooden about the successes he had had. He'd had teams that were extremely successful. And he said, I thought I had a team that couldn't play any other way but pressing full court all the time. My biggest player was 6'5", and he weighed 240, but he was fast. And I put him on the front of a press, and we ended up being very uh, good defensively and turned the ball over and had a lot of run-out type of things. And I continued that offense until uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar came to UCLA, and he was the front of the press. All of a sudden, now you had a guy 7'1", that was the front of the press that was on the, the baseline of the opponent. And he said, eventually I had to change my style and meet the players that were, you know, part of our team, which was then Bill Walton, et cetera. But he was very successful, obviously, you know, winning 11 NCAA championships, but he had a variety of players and he styled his system eventually on what the players' attributes were. And I think there's two things that can go together in that, you know, understanding what your talents are as a coach and playing to the best possibility. Our defensive stance was, do we have players that can pressure full court, half court, or the three-point line? At some point, <clears throat> at some point, you have to be able to put pressure, shooting <clears throat> on the defense. You have to be able to put pressure defensively on the offense. And what level are you going to be able to do that at? So there are some of these things that I think are wonderful experimental things. But it doesn't always mean it. Shoe fits every foot. Coach, a couple of the experiments, the bigger ones that, of course, are most noteworthy in what you write about are when you implemented mindfulness and meditation practice in, in your some of your earlier days with the Bulls and also some visualization practices. With regard to those, how did you identify that those would be potentially useful interventions? It's uh, 
basically was my life, uh, uh, somewhat about my life that I felt at some point in the later years of my career playing basketball that I had to get to a position where I got uh, breathing correctly, uh, relaxing correctly and prior to a game. And I found a adjacent locker room that was you know, empty in Madison Square Garden and could be used for this type of thing. And I had other players join me and uh, were also, you know, trying to find the breath and also the quietness because, as you probably know, the locker rooms are uh, exposed to media people uh, up until 40 minutes before the game. And so you have this continual... Uh, banter that's going on in the locker room with reporters trying to interview players and to find that space that you need to go to was something that I felt was necessary for myself in my career and other people uh, recognized it and so I thought well this might work as far as what a team needs to do as a group rather than just the individuals that kind of gravitate towards uh, being quiet and meditative before a game so, uh, you know, I, I implemented that, but it was part of my daily life also. So I knew that what worked for me might also work for other people. But you found somewhat quickly, it sounds like that, that your own experience was something that was not immediately familiar to others, especially when you, as the head coach, were trying to implement this what were the initial reactions of members of the team when you tried to implement that? And then how did you get from an initial reticence by some to do it to broader buy-in? Um, Michael Jordan retired after the third championship in 92. I think it was between seasons in 92 and there was a rather large ceremony about him retiring and it was held at the United Center and various coaches that had coached him, Dean Smith and Bobby Knight, both deceased members of the Hall of Fame of coaching, were there because they coached him in college and also in the Olympics. And they were sitting right behind me at this particular auspicious, you know, kind of ceremony, which, you know, lasted 18 months before he came back and played three more years with the Bulls. And they tapped me on the shoulder and they said, uh, we're curious, is it true that you turn off all the lights and have the players hold hands before a game? You know, that was kind of the rumor that had come out. And I said, well, that's an interesting how that got to you. I don't understand, but uh, I kind of took it as maybe it wasn't something that I should be doing. And I contacted a, a source, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, teacher of mindfulness and he sent one of his instructors that taught mindfulness, George Mumford, who has made quite a name for himself in sports and mindfulness training. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn was the promoter of that and he'd written a book, Wherever You Are, There You Are. You know, wherever you go, there you are. And uh, so George was kind of a former basketball player, coached, uh, I mean, played ball at the University of Massachusetts and had some uh, cred with the players, so to speak, and had a method of how to teach mindfulness in which it was a, kind of a talking mindful. It took the initial idea away from me as 
as monitoring this and put it in the hands of somebody that was, uh, you know, a trainer. He had done work with both the prisoners in the state of Massachusetts, the 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 uh, and the judges and the um, the police, the state police in that state, till that program ran dry in the state of Massachusetts and was waiting for the next call, basically as to where he was going to go. And he ended up working with us for a number of successful years and uh, did a, a, a lot about uh, where we are as a community and dealing with the community before he would start into a, a talking meditation of mindfulness and trying to bring that anxiety level or the, the level of competence up to where you could meet the pressure needed for sustaining performance and still staying calm and in control. There was a, a high school football coach a number of years back, and I don't know if he's still active, but he was, I think he was in Arkansas and he had the philosophy of never punting in his, his, he had studied it. He had studied it all. Have you heard of this guy? No, but the concept makes me laugh. I see it. <laughs> he and his logic was that, you know, high school punters aren't very good. So your your net average is you might get 20 yards, you know, you might have a bad long snapper, you know, you might get a turnover. So that like the really the payoff in a in punting in high school for most teams wasn't very good. So he he literally never never punted. It could be like fourth and twenty on your own eight yard line. And he would go for it. <laughs> And he actually achieved a lot of success and a lot of notoriety for it. But there was one interview with him and he had all the stats and he showed all the things I just said. And he said, but do you know what keeps most coaches from doing this is it's when it's fourth and 10 on your own eight yard line and you go for it and you don't get it. And everyone views you as a fool because everyone else punts it, even though the, you know, the data might show that, yes, you should go for it there's this social pressure that deters most coaches from trying out of the box things. How did you confront that? Well, I think success has a big part of whatever you do and you're successful at, uh, you know, people want to copy it. We're mimics and uh, basically lemons as human beings and we follow the, the herd a lot of times. <clears throat> but there were some things that I tried that were not successful. I had a uh, therapist that was talking to me about the pension for the team, which at uh, that time was failing uh, to overcome their arc opponent, the Detroit Pistons, commonly known as the bad boys. So the bad boys had this tendency of accelerating physical activity until retaliation became part of the, the drill or part of the activity. And then retaliation ended up in a little brawl or something going on physically. And <clears throat> what he uh, wanted me to try with the players was to do something he did in therapy as a therapist. And that was to put a pencil between your teeth and back behind your molars and get like you're an ape and jump up and down and grunt like you're an ape in cohesion with your teammate partner. You had to partnerize. This thing, okay. So anyway, the idea was to bring the aggression up to a level where it was controlled, 
but yet it was still, you know, part of your physical being, your musculature. So we tried it and everybody fell over laughing. Then we tried it again and everybody said, no, this isn't going to work. But uh, we learned that it wasn't about aggression or uh, matching physical prowess, but it was about speed and depth, being able to be uh, uh, agile and, and use quickness in, in replacing muscular uh, physical nature. So that was something that was kind of a breakthrough in that part of the sport at that time. And I think it's important when you when you share these examples, Coach, and when we when we were talking about some of these that I again bring up the importance of having a bedrock system that underlies all that you do. So even as you were trying these new things, you had a system. It wasn't like you were going from year to year and uprooting everything that you believed in. You had a consistency upon which you were able to try experiments. Well, yes, and the the idea was is that uh, our practices were dedicated to various uh, what we call skills and drills that we learned a certain amount of skills through doing drills, and it took the place at the beginning of practice. One of the maxims about coaching is what you do at the beginning of practice resonates strongly with the athletes. They will remember more from the beginning of practice than they will from something at the end. That's why. You know, a lot of times it's just scrimmage time. How about a little scrimmage for 15 minutes before we leave the practice floor? So it could be a, more of a little playful attitude and not something that, uh, you know, is endemic or kind of sets in as a pattern for the players. So the idea of keeping um, skills and drills as the main project or aspect of what you're doing uh, you know, is really the important idea. And that's technical part of the game, which, you know, is like, I, I have this one statement I always made for the, for the participants in a practice. Um, it, it is about a famous cello, uh, celloist who uh, was a conductor also. And he, he was a conductor of some notoriety because he'd been such a great player, uh, a celloist over the years. And in doing one of Bach's concerto, a student said, what do you do to practice the Bach's concerto uh, when you know that you're going to have to play it in a concerto or in a concert later on? How do you practice it in the mornings? And he said, I, I, I never practice the concerto in the in the start, all you do is fingering for the first 30 minutes of when you're getting ready to play. You have to do scales. If you're a pianist, you have to do fingering. If you're a violinist or a cellist. So that was kind of the aspect. You have to get your skills and drills of the athletes and put them in the position where they know what is important about the sport and how to actively participate in the sport in the correct way. There's a couple of sociological terms we've used over the years a lot in our classes that are really relevant here as I'm listening to you coach one is the term homophily which is that we all have a tendency to to gravitate toward people who are like us and you can see that on many levels that um whether it's by 
gender or race or interest or all kinds of variables. We all are, we all tend to gravitate toward people who are like us. And the other is propinquity, which is the the power of proximity, meaning that those who are closest to us, literally in proximity, have the biggest impact on our lives. And these can be great things in that if we're surrounded like in a coaching situation with really smart and good, diverse opinion people, but it can also be a, a limiter if if we're always around the same people and we all and we're kind of um, isolated with a certain set of ideas. Coach, I wonder, did you have specific ways of kind of diversifying what you were hearing over the years that your team was hearing to ensure that you were kind of overcoming the limiting impacts of these things? Um, basically, you know, I, I see that as something which was endemic in our sport of basketball for years was the teams in the West played a high um, activity game. Their, their games were in 110, 120 <clears throat> range. And this, the East had a, a kind of a 95 to 100 point limits in games. And it was just because we were all in the same kind of conference or area. It was very accelerated in college. And uh, the idea of college was eventually, you know, the East and the West would meet in a holiday tournament. And the advent of the jump shot came about when the guy who brought it from Stanford to the East Coast scored as many points in a game as the teams were averaging on the East Coast in a holiday tournament in the late 30s and early 40s. And suddenly... Uh, a new way of shooting the basketball became part of the accepted uh, role of the game. And uh, I think that part meets that first uh, term that you used, the proximity or the, the nearness of what you do. And you see that also in uh, regional, regional kind of uh, sports activities that are going on um, Hockey, for example, in Western uh, Canada and uh, Western United States is different than hockey back east. It's uh, a different sport that uh, plays a different way and has a different method. Um, but um, other than, um, you, you know, the, the normal pattern of what you hear and see uh, I used to tell players, don't watch too much ESPN or too much of what you see that's going on in the sport because all you're going to see is dunk. They'll show you one dunk after another or a different one. That's not what the game's about. The game's about rebounding, ball possession, or whatever, you know, coach wants to say. But those items can get imprinted because of the, the idea that it's spectacular or it's the way... Uh, that draws attention to oneself. When we talk about a culture of experimentation and trying new things, some of the things that jump out about you, Coach, are language, and that some of the language you use in your leadership is just different from what a lot of coaches have used in the past. And I just use a couple of examples, like the word energy is a word that you use a lot, and the word spirit or the spiritual aspect of the game. 
there are not a lot of coaches before you, or even as there are more now because of you, but who use that kind of language. And so one aspect of experimentation is language and the language we use with groups. How do you take a group that is a very diverse group of, of players from all over the world and in, in a very you know, different parts of the country, different skill sets, different ways of learning and make a common set of language effective with words like, like, like you use? Well, we used to have a vocabulary list that uh, went along with what we, we taught. You had to know the vocabulary. Um, well, one point uh, I'll make that shows you the difference. There's a, there's a certain element when a player reverses course on a basketball floor and they call it a back door. He went back door. Well, a back, back door is not that at all. It's a wing reverse. Um, and so we used a term that was completely different and we had something that was called a back door is when the whole side was empty. There was no one there like a back door would be. Um, but, you know, even using that term that just doesn't generate uh, commonality because backdoor has become so, uh, you know, part of the game that it's still being used. And, you know, there, there are terms like uh, uh, that, <laughs> that are going to allow to score the ball. Well, you know, you score an orange or you score, an, uh, you know, uh, you know, something else. You can put a score on it by making the knife and cutting it through, but you make a basket, you know. Why do you score the ball? I mean, that's kind of like a, a term that is, is kind of ridiculous. So they're just obvious terms that you know can be thrown out right away. But the terms that are important are, you know, what type of a pass you're trying to make, or what type of a footwork you're trying to use, or what type of of, of um, defensive strategy you have. Uh, you know, the oblique, you know, aspect of it, the the right triangle and the isosceles triangle. You know, various things that you use that are uh, aspects of how to penetrate defenses. And, you know, that becomes like the whole process of most sport, perhaps not baseball, but for majority of sports that are ball-oriented sports, you're using a penetrating uh, idea. So you know, a lot of that verbiage came along with that. So no doubt that the, the, your players have to understand the, the language. Now, there's something that we use in, oftentimes in our game, which was called the blind pig. Everybody would say, where does that fit in basketball terminology? And it's, it's a terminology that comes out of the, uh, out of the prisons because it's a, it's a, uh, like a shiv became like a pig and the blind shiv was someone who gets stabbed in the back from not knowing where it came from. And it's somehow gravitated into our sport, into our language, where the person that's the farthest away from the ball, where the defense isn't looking, steps into this vacuum and receives the ball. And that became a blind pig. So there's some really you know, strange things that happen in sports where terminology becomes like, okay, this is just identified with this specific thing that we do, which was uh, sideline triangle basically was the name of our offense which has become just a triangle and, and uh, the process of how it's been looked at. 
So there's a whole different set of vocabulary that you had to teach, you know, players that obviously we were playing with three or four um, international players on our team and taking them through that and demonstrating the language and how it fit into those terms is important to do because otherwise they're just doing something by rote, not by knowledge of what it really means. It's fascinating because on one hand, the language is just a very pragmatic thing. It's the way you go about your business, but a, a well-conceptualized and well-integrated vocabulary of a team ultimately becomes part of your collective identity in teams that are able to have a clear and meaningful collective vocabulary can cement some of their norms and beliefs about how they do their work. I agree very much. Who has a question or a comment for coach? I'd like to comment on, on listening to Phil. You know, we have competed against each other. And so we were, we're seeing a different, uh, I think I'm seeing a different coach than uh, a lot of times what we were playing. Uh, and uh, I'm amazed at the things that uh, he talked about, uh, the number of things that uh, I would never have uh, given a lot of thought to. But the story about Wooden, I would like to correct um, because the end of the story, uh, to me, uh, was the greatest part of what he was talking about. It started with him saying to me, because uh, where I was coaching, it, it was kind of like a desert out there. And uh, he said, it must be tough to, to uh, recruit players here. And I said, yeah, it is. But once we get them here, there's nothing for them to do. So we have a, we have a lot of time with them in basketball, and uh, uh, it, it, it seemed to just still work out. Then he said, that's what a coach has to do. He said, for years, I did not believe we could go any place in the, the tournaments. And he was criticized for that. Uh, and it, uh, and it, it kind of must have kind of played a part in it. Uh, but then he said, uh, every year, you remember if you've read, ever, uh, ever heard anything of him, every year he made a list of the place teams we could beat. Uh, when he was doing that, uh, he didn't believe he could, could win in the tournaments. Uh, and then he said one day, uh, I, I was doing that, and I really thought that this team could win, uh, and that we could win big. Well, they did. It was the first year. He had, uh, he had two players on that team that didn't even have a basketball scholarship, and uh, three, three players did. Uh, and he said, I had many better teams. Um, but he said, that team, I, I believed we could win. I believed we could win a championship. Uh, he said, I can't explain it other than it just was a feeling. Uh, and, uh, and he said, we did. 
you know, we won the, the championship that year. And he said, after that, I believe we could win it all the time. Uh, and he said, that what happened is I changed, not the players. I believed in what we were and what we could do. Once that I changed, the whole picture of our team changed. And I, I, I thought that was a tremendous uh, thing to, to think about as a, as a coach. That idea of intellectual humility that we talked about at the beginning, it sounds like that was very present there for that juncture for Coach Wooden being willing to change himself. Yeah, yeah. Both what you said here, Coach Ecker, and some of what a lot of what we've read about Coach Jackson as well uh, brings this point to mind about experimentation for very specific purposes. And that is to say, we I was meeting with our volleyball coach, this is a couple of years ago, and he was talking about some of the changes that he made to his program were not just like aimed at generalized improvement, but they were, he was thinking of like two specific opponents that they had a hard time getting over, two very specific other teams that they just kept not being able to beat. And so some of his experiments were directly aimed at how we're going to beat those two teams in a very specific way. And so I think that's um, what, both what Coach Wooden, I know when he used to have some challenges facing Coach Newell or some of the other teams. And then Coach Jackson, when you used to face, you mentioned the bad boys, some of the changes you made directly thinking about them are a great example of that. I liked what Ron had to say about seeing the team's potential through John Wooden's eyes. When you see the potential of the players that you have on your team elevated and, you know, not particularly your role, but particularly the team's goals um, possible and the possibility of their becoming really good, uh, I think they start to take on a mannerism as a group. <clears throat> and they start to use your language when they talk about the game and they talk about it to the press or to the reporters or maybe to their family so that they have uh, not only their own pride in their team, but also they are proselytizing. They are, you know, going out and talking to their family about the team using the language that you've, <clears throat> you've used to to promote the game and the way you see it to be played. Well, this has been a great session. I'd like to wrap it up by, again, highlighting three things that we have a chance to think about. <laughs> Systemic innovation, about choice architecture, and about cultures of experimentation when we're coaches. And that in reading about Coach Jackson's work over the years and also learning here today from what he shared and also what Coach Ecker shared, we can be in innovators as coaches and we can create space where new ideas can happen. So I'd like to thank you all. And as we head into the weekend, um, keep your eye out for innovation and creativity. 
and the coaches who are doing it well. Thank you all. Have a great. Thank you, Coach Jackson. Thank you so much. Hope you yeah. all have a great weekend.